Hey everyone, this is Nick and welcome to the third episode of this Linux and open source news podcast, which is a weekly little or, or long monologue where I talk about everything that happened in the Linux world and I also touch on privacy and open internet and gaming topics. Now as a reminder, this thing is completely ad and sponsor free, so if you like it, please consider looking at the links in the show notes to help me support this new podcast, which comes on top of already running my YouTube channel, for which you can also find a link in the show notes, as well as for all articles that I used to create this show. So if you want any more detailed information or go back to the source for any of these topics, you can find all the links in the description. And you also find all the links to my socials and other platforms, And if you want to leave a comment, if you have some feedback, you can also go to the podcast website. The link is also in the show notes, or it's just podcast.thelinuxexp.com. So this week, our major topics are the Linux Foundation, trying to offer an open source alternative to the Zuckerberg's vision of the metaverse. Then we have the AI tool called Stable Diffusion, which is being sued by Getty Images to try and set a precedent on how AI can or cannot use various works to train itself. And that would in turn also work for open source code, etc. if a precedent is set. And we also have the release of the first beta for KDE 5.27. I was going to say 2, but no, 2 is out and has been out for a long time. So the first beta of KDE 5.27 with tiling, multi-monitor fixes, a welcome screen and a lot of other improvements. So let's begin with the metaverse. And if you don't know what the metaverse is, it's basically trying to bring regular people into VR to do the same things as that they already do on a regular computer monitor, but in VR. So for example, having a meeting, a virtual meeting. So you just move your head and you see all the participants and you can just lean over to someone and and whisper something in their ear instead of having a Zoom call, for example or just collaborating on a document in VR, or manipulating your computer in VR instead of using a normal monitor. That's the vision that Zuckerberg and Meta are trying to bring. And for now, it's had, it hasn't really worked all that well, let's be honest. Uh, what they showed was absolutely atrocious. And the very idea of a company like Meta controlling what could be the future of how we work, I, don't personally think it will be, but it could be, that's a nightmare. And so the Linux Foundation uh, probably thought the same thing, and they started a new foundation themselves called the Open Metaverse Foundation, OMF, which is basically their new initiative to try and get various actors to work together on open source standards and on an open source vendor neutral metaverse. So it's basically trying to make an environment that anyone can collaborate on and that would be a competitor to what Meta is trying to do. So if we do have to go for the metaverse, if we do have to use it at some point for some reason, if the general public decides that this is where computing is going, at least we might have a chance of having it be an open thing and not a privacy nightmare like what Facebook uh, will probably build. Now, they already have a bunch of members, but I haven't heard of any of them before. They are all completely unknown to me. I'm not an expert on on VR and building VR-related technologies. 
or all the names are in the articles in the description of the podcast. Uh, you, you'll see if you know any of those. Uh, so they already organized that new foundation into various interest groups, for example, for users, for transactions, for digital assets, for artificial intelligence, for security and privacy. Th those are basically committees and, and groups, user groups, that will group contributors by, by topic. And so each of these groups, interest groups, will have the task of discussing these topics, onboarding contributors, and basically setting the roadmap for each of these things and setting the standards that can then be used by other companies to build their metaverse with an open platform. It's obviously very, very early days. They have nothing to show for it right now. They don't have a open source metaverse download that you could try and use with any VR headset. Nothing is built yet. It's just very early days to try and set up the infrastructure that we could use to build an open source metaverse. Now, they do have a website up and running with a few articles. And there's one that is interesting that mentions that they intend to use the Open 3D Engine, which is another project. It used to be the Lumberyard Engine developed by Amazon uh, for some of their own games. But then they just released the code openly. They open sourced it and it became the Open 3D Engine. It's also a project hosted by the Linux Foundation or, or a foundation built by the Linux Foundation. And so that engine, the Open 3D Engine, will be the base for that interoperable metaverse, which is cool. Like they're reusing building blocks that they already have. It's, it's not bad. Now, all contributions will be licensed under the Apache 2.0 license and the MIT license. So basically anyone could use, modify, extend, distribute the source code. Those are very permissive licenses that let you do basically anything you might want with them uh, as long as you like retain the original license or at least attribute it uh, in the code. If you say like this part comes licensed under the MIT license, we added everything we wanted on top of it. You don't have to open source any addition that you make to the original code. They're not like viral licenses like the GPL, for example. So yeah, it should be able to attract uh, commercial interests as well for maybe companies that don't really want to build their own platform or don't really have the resources to start from scratch. Uh, if they start to have a cool usable base, maybe some other companies might be interested in contributing to that because the licenses don't mean that everything they build on top of this open foundation would have to be redistributed as open source code. Now, personally, I think the metaverse is a stupid idea because all the concepts that we've seen just shows that the metaverse is doing the things we can already do on a computer screen, but worse. It's less practical, it's less comfortable, it's more cumbersome. Uh, you can't live entirely in the metaverse. You have to switch it on and off uh, from your computer, then the metaverse or something, then you remove your helmet. It's just not comfy. The hardware is not there yet. It's too heavy. You can't wear that for four hours or eight hours of work. It's not practical, and, and honestly, what Facebook has built looks horrible. It looks buggy as hell. They should never even have shown it in this state. Uh, yeah, I think for now, there has been no proof that anyone needs or wants the metaverse. But if we have to have it, if it's going to be force-fed to us, then I would rather have an open-source model that people can plug into and, and that works interoperably between vendors than having the Zuckerberg's vision of it. Now, our second topic is about AI, specifically uh, stable diffusion, which is like this wonderful new AI tool that lets you 
basically create drawings and AI art uh, with various art styles. It's a very efficient one. Uh, we've seen some incredible renders used with it. Uh, some people like Corridor Digital even used it to create videos. Uh, they managed to make stable diffusion render frames, various frames, and they coupled it with another AI tool to like interpolate the various movements between the frames that stable diffusion has rendered. It's insanely powerful. But the issue, as with most AI tools, is how it was trained. And apparently Getty Images think that it's been trained using their own images. They shared a press statement stating that they believe, it's, it's alleged, it's not been ruled on anything, uh, but they believe that Stable Diffusion has unlawfully copied and processed millions of images from Getty Images that were protected by copyright to train their machine learning algorithm. Now, Getty Images has started legal proceedings in England. Uh, they apparently sent Stability AI, which are the developers of Stable Diffusion. They sent them a letter uh, before action, which is just a letter of intent telling you that, hey, you're being sued. Uh, and what they say is that Stable Diffusion has used their intellectual property or the intellectual property of Getty Image contributors without asking, without consent, and in order to build a commercial product for their own personal benefit. And they don't think that this use case is covered by fair use in the US or its UK equivalent called fair dealing. Now they say Stability AI never reached out to them uh, to know if they could use any of these images. And they say that the current landscape regarding AI is just exactly like what existed at the beginning of digital music where basically the fact that all art was digital and accessible by anyone made, made it so that companies like Napster emerged and were very popular because there was a, a legal gray area before it was determined that what Napster was doing, which was sharing music files illegally, once that was determined that it was illegal, then the landscape changed. And they, they're saying that what's happening to AI is basically the same thing. The current framework has not been built to deal with these issues and to know how to handle copyright or attribution issues in regard to how AI uses those images. And so what they want is not necessarily to make a profit or to have damages and financial damages uh, from Stable Diffusion, from, uh, from uh, Stability AI, the company that makes Stable Diffusion. They don't necessarily want monetary compensation, but they want to set a precedent that will basically say, okay, in regards to AI, this is what you need to do in order to have access to images. This is the copyright law you have to use when you're accessing images from another company online. Even if the image is freely accessible through a, a search engine, you still have to use attribution or, or your output has to be licensed under the same license, uh, the most permissive license that you use to train your AI or whatever. Or if you decide to commercialize your product, you need to also cut in the people whose images you use to train your AI. Basically, that's what they want to see a framework that explains what can and can't be done with AI. And probably they hope that this framework will say, you can't just take any image of the internet to train your AI and then sell the results. And I must very much agree on that. Honestly, I'm, I'm on that front as well. If you're using someone else's creative content as the base of your own commercial product, I think the original artist should get a cut. It seems quite normal. Like some stuff is fair use, like, like citing an article or basically what I'm doing in this podcast is using somebody else's creative work to build my own work, which, well, this one is free of charge, but you have the opportunity to commercially support it if you want. 
But in my case, I would say it's fair use because I don't copy entire passages. I give my opinion around it. I often mix and match multiple articles at the same time to write uh, one, one paragraph of these, uh, of these things. And I generally retranscribe information that I could have gotten everywhere else. Uh, I could have gotten 10 or 20 different sources for that information. AI, what it does is less clear cut, in my opinion. And then again, I'm no lawyer and I have basically no skill set to define what is legal or not. But the way I feel is that the, the fact that it uses massive amounts of data to train their models and the fact that it commercializes the output, which sometimes is a clear copy, either from an art style or from a specific image, I think this warrants to be looked at at least and to have a new legal framework uh, written. Whether it's permissive or non-permissive, I don't care, but I think it needs to be like legally clear how you can use AI and how you can use images or text or videos online to build a commercial product. Now, still on the topic of AI, but a way smaller one, uh, Adobe had to put out a statement to reassure their users that they were not using their creative work to train their own AI models. This came after Adobe used some weird language in their terms and conditions, saying that by default, Adobe users gave Adobe their permission to analyze their content using techniques such as machine learning to develop and improve their products and services. This honestly kind of sounded like they wanted to use what you stored in your creative cloud to train an Adobe AI that could then be sold as a supplementary product uh, to Photoshop users, for example. Apparently, that's not what it meant. And uh, since this, this, these terms and conditions were also accompanied by a checkbox that users had to opt out of, they had to uncheck it if they didn't want to give consent, it also weirded people out, basically. People were very annoyed at the fact that, you know what, they just did that by default. They changed the terms and conditions, something that you know no one reads. No one will, everybody will just click accept and get to work. You can't expect people to give consent just by clicking them on, by them clicking on a button. It cannot work like that. It's, it's actually something that Facebook is being attacked on uh, in Europe uh, recently because they, they said that, Hey, you accepted the terms and conditions, so whatever is in there goes. It should not be like that, obviously. So people were weirded out, and Adobe said that, no, that's not what we're doing. We're not going to use what you stored in your creative cloud to train an AI model. Uh, we are going to use uh, some stuff to train a experimental AI features, but it's not going to be trained on everything that you create. Then again, they really need to clear to clarify uh, what they're going to use it on because if they're if they're asking for people to have their permission to analyze their content with machine learning, then what else is there as a product <laughs> or as a feature? Uh, I don't know. May maybe the AI is trained only on your stuff. So when you use the Adobe AI that they're working on. The only thing that it's going to use is your stuff. And so if we have three different artists, the AI will be trained on three different sets uh, of, of data. And this data isn't going to be pooled, but I don't think that would be enough art or data to, to ensure that an AI could be correctly trained. It's not clear. And you can't blame people for being wary. So it's good that Adobe clarified it, but they really need to clarify it more. Because right now, 
you can't really see what they're trying to build with these permissions unless they're just putting this in there so they make sure that they have consent. And so whenever they want to, de to develop something linked to AI, they already have a huge base of people who said yes, because, well, they never actively said no. So now we also have the KDE Plasma 5.27 beta, which is now available for people who want to give it a spin. Uh, there are multiple ways you can try it out. The easier is probably using their official Docker image or just using KDE Neon Unstable or testing. I think the two uh, of them have the latest beta on them. And so you can test drive it in a VM or install it on bare metal. Generally, their betas are pretty stable. You can also have some packages for some distros, but I don't think many distros will package betas. And you also have the source code if you want to compile it yourself, if you're a Gen 2 fan or whatever, uh, that works. Now, the major improvements to KDE Plasma 5.27 that you can test already in this beta are first, the new Plasma Welcome app. It's basically like the GNOME first run setup thing combined with a little bit of the GNOME tour. Uh, it just showcases a few features, a few select features of KDE Plasma. It lets you set up your online accounts, it lets you find help online, uh, how to contribute, and it explains what Plasma is. You can skip it, there's a very nice skip button uh, in the top left corner, so you can say, I don't want that if you're a KDE veteran. And for new users, it's going to be good, and apparently they also build it so that it can be expanded upon by distributions, which means that specific distros that have a a customized KDE Plasma layout out of the box can reflect these changes uh, in the KDE Welcome app, which is cool. The second uh, big feature is Flatpak support. It's been improved. Uh, now in, in the permission settings, you can set Flatpak permissions for Flatpak apps. Uh, so basically you can say this app has access to Bluetooth, but this one doesn't. This one has access to my home folder, but not the entire file system, etc., etc. That was missing from KDE. Now it's in there and it's good because, well, it's very practical. I wish uh, GNOME also implemented all these permissions uh, inside of their GNOME settings uh, instead of having users have to install a flat seal, which is too complex. Like the permissions GNOME exposes for Flatpak apps are too simple and flat seal has too many. GNOME should strike a compromise between the two, I think, uh, just to make sure that people can actually understand what they're doing. Another big thing that will probably please a lot of Plasma users or a lot of potential Plasma users is multi-monitor support. They completely refactored that support. KDE Plasma was notorious for having multi-monitor bugs, uh, windows not moving correctly from one monitor to the other. If you disconnected your laptop from an external monitor, stuff could be broken all around, the panels were moving around, widgets were moving around, activities weren't kept sometimes. There were a lot of bugs with multi-monitor support. And this version does not fix all the multi-monitor bugs, but it has a brand new implementation that basically has an index, a table of monitors. Each monitor has a number. And when you unplug or plug them in, they know the old number that they had and the new number that they now have. And so they're able to transition relatively smoothly from one state to the other. For example, if your main monitor is your laptop monitor, you plug into an external monitor, it now has your number one monitor, which is the laptop, and the number two, which is the external. This number two is kept. So if you unplug that external monitor, 
everything will transition back to your number one, the laptop. But if you replug to number two, all your applications and panels and setups will be adapted to monitor number two because it will remember that this monitor has been number two and that you had a bunch of configurations for it. That's how I understand it. And it's going to make things a lot easier. It doesn't mean that all bugs are fixed, but it means that multi-monitor support will be a lot better. And they also gave more options for people who have three or more monitors uh, so they can have more fine-grained control over what is mirrored, what is extended, and stuff like that. And the last big feature is tiling. Uh, KDE Plasma 5.27 brings tiling features to Kwin, which is their window manager. Uh, it's not a full-on replacement for something like i3 or, or BSPWM or something. Uh, you can't completely replace uh, these window managers with Kwin, but for people who only needed light tiling features without completely losing access to title bars and, and the Wayland compositor that is Kwin, well, now you can. You can create tiling layouts on Plasma 5.27, and you can... Position the windows, you just press shift and you move the window somewhere. And if it's in a in one of the parts of your tiling layout that you created, it's going to automatically snap to that place uh, and resize how it goes. So it's easy, it's keyboard controlled uh, or mouse controlled, whatever you want. And it's going to work well, I think. So these are the big features that you should try if you want to try out uh, the KDE Plasma 5.27 beta. And it's also going to be the last release of KDE Plasma 5. After this one, the developers will start working on KD Plasma 6. And so I don't think they're only going to take four months to release something. They already said that the release cycle might be changed to make sure that they can work on good stuff. And there is some good stuff coming in Plasma 6. I'm not going to talk about that here. I'll probably make a dedicated video when they have official announces. Now, we talked about Plasma enough, let's go to GNOME. Uh, if you remember, they had an opt-in telemetry tool uh, that you could install voluntarily on your GNOME desktop, and that ran using the command line, and that sends data on how you use GNOME uh, to, the, to the GNOME developers. Well, they've collected some answers, and unsurprisingly, it's not that many answers. It's 2,500 uh, person that, that ran that thing, and that's not that much. And... Obviously, the approach that they picked, like install it voluntarily, run it voluntarily, would limit the amount of data that they can collect. Something like what Ubuntu does, which is opt out, would obviously have generated more, but it's also way more respectful of uh, users' data, even though it's absolutely not personal data. GNOME did it the right way, I think. But since it was opt-in and it was mainly promoted using the GNOME channels, uh, the GNOME media, social media channels, then of course the amount of answers is kind of biased. Uh, there's a clear bias that you will see when we look at the data uh, in, in what has been uh, reported. For example, if you look at the operating system usage, Fedora is 54% of responses, which and surprisingly, I mean, I think a lot of people who are really big GNOME fans would use Fedora because it's probably the distro that ships GNOME to, to as close to vanilla as can be, apart maybe from something like Arch, but a lot of people don't want to run a bleeding edge uh, rolling release distro. So yeah, you can clearly see that bias in, in, the, in the OS usage. I'm a big fan of Fedora, but even I know that it's not 54% of GNOME users that run Fedora. It can't be. It simply can't be. Uh, 
But the rest of the data is pretty interesting. Uh, you see that the good old ThinkPads uh, still seem to be a device of choice for people who run Linux. 23% uh, of respondents use a device from Lenovo, so we can comfortably assume that these are ThinkPads. On GNOME workspaces, uh, apparently most people use the default, with uh, workspaces being only displayed on the primary display, which is the default on GNOME, for 82% of respondents, and 89% of them are using dynamic workspaces instead of a fixed number, which again is the default. These numbers are complex to interpret because you can't really know if they are that high because people like the default or just because people never bother to change the default. But since we have a high representation of people using ThinkPads and Fedora, I think people, those, these people will probably know that there's an option to change and that the, uh, the default just works for them. Not, not really sure. It's, it's hard to decide if it's a personal preference or just the fact that it's the default. A very short majority of people did make use of the online accounts and, and Google is the biggest online account used by these persons. Uh, Nextcloud is second and Microsoft is third. Uh, so it clearly proves that a lot of people using Linux don't actually really care that much about privacy or their data. Because if the first account that you enter when you're using your OS is your Google account, even though you're not forced to do it, then you probably don't really care all that much about privacy. Uh, over 90% of the systems uh, also had Flatpak installed, and 84% of all those systems uh, used FlatHub, uh, which means that basically the two are very hard to separate. And the default browser was mostly Firefox at 73%, so I think we found all the Firefox users there are in the world. Uh, <laughs> they're all using Linux. Uh, and Chrome is second at 11% of respondents. And what's more interesting, I think, is the shell extensions data. Shell extensions were used by 84% of users. And most of them have from 1 to 5 manually installed extensions. It's not extensions installed by their distro, it's the stuff that they added themselves. And it's quite surprising, because we have people using vanilla GNOME on Fedora in the majority, and these people still add extensions compared to what vanilla GNOME ships. And unsurprisingly, App Indicator support is the biggest extension. It basically uh, gives you a system tray. And then there's GS Connect, uh, which is KDE Connect before GNOME. There's the user themes that lets you customize the look and feel of GNOME. And there are the dash to dock or the dash to panel extensions, which are also very, very popular. Now, with this kind of data, I think the most interesting one is absolutely on the extensions. Because even with that big bias, it means that people really, really want certain features out of their desktop environment. And honestly, if GNOME looking at all this data decides that they don't have to work on app indicator support or notification tray support in the future to add that back, if they decide that's not needed, then yes, you can clearly say that they don't listen to their users. When you have that many people using app indicator support on your vanilla desktop, I think it's a clear sign that yes, even if the implementation is hacky, most applications implement that thing in a different way. It's not very controllable, it's not finite, there's no real good API out there to handle this, but people still want it and people still use it whether you have a good API or not. So are you going to implement good support for it 
or work on an API that applications could actually support, or are you gonna still bury your head in the sand and say, there's no real technical solution to do it, so we're not gonna do it. When you have that clear cut of a, of a data set, I don't think you can bury your head in the sand. And I think it kind of proves that they're gonna have to work on some alternative for a notification tray at some point. But you never know. Now, in terms of uh, information and open internet, we have a, a weird one uh, this week uh, in India. The Indian government has passed, well, has written a proposal, a law proposal, that is part of a bigger IT law package. Uh, this proposal indicates that social media firms should rely on fact-checking solutions. That's good but they should rely on fact-checking solutions that are done by the government agencies themselves. That's bad. <laughs> At least I think it is. So what they propose is that the Press Bureau of India and its related agencies become the reference for what is misinformation or disinformation online. And so social networks would have a common reference on what is true or what is not true. So they could display certain banners or information saying, you know what, this has been proven false, or this information has been proven to be untrue or not exact. Or they could just completely remove that content uh, if it's completely fake. And this proposal is just a draft for now. It's part of an amendment to India's IT rules. And it also accompanies other laws that would put social media firms and gaming companies in charge of making sure that any content they display isn't patently false or untrue or misleading, whether they're the ones who created it or whether their users did. So basically any website that shows content created by their users would have the obligation, the legal obligation to monitor that content and to remove or clearly indicate what is false and what is true. That's a very big endeavor in and of itself. It's one that the internet absolutely needs, maybe not censoring that content, but actually displaying the fact that it's fake, uh, like stuff that Twitter did. Uh, you have to give credit to Twitter when, when credit is due. Uh, Twitter had that fact-checking thing for a while, uh, and they displayed under certain tweets or articles a small banner saying, you know what, this thing, eh, it's kind of in doubt. It's, uh, it's weird and it's probably not true. I think YouTube had something about that as well. Uh, they had some fact-checking things. Uh, Twitter's uh, was, I think it was crowdsourced. Users could say, this is true, this is not true, which I think is the best way of doing it. Letting the majority of people decide what is true or not is probably a better idea uh, than having a one agency deciding for everyone else. So that's, that's, a, that's a concerning law uh, because, well, yes, of course, uh, social media companies and, and user-generated content websites should have an obligation to display what is or isn't patently false if it's been proven to be false. But the source of what is true and false is in debate. And having a government decide that is never a good idea. Uh, and the worst thing is the Press Bureau of India has already been found to have misleading fact checks in the past. They already did a few fact checks and some of these were wrong, basically. They said this has been proven to be untrue or this is misleading when no, it wasn't. It was true. So that's a, that's really an issue and anything that wouldn't be deemed true could be taken down. It's not necessarily just labeling content as misleading. They could also completely take it down. 
And so various foundations and various industry groups, even those that represent uh, the big tech companies like Google or Microsoft or, or, or others, are all opposed to that proposal. Uh, they're labeling it as absolutist and regressive, and I think they're absolutely right. I think we can all agree that no government should have the power to decide what is true and what isn't and enforce any kind of censorship based on that. Even the most benevolent governments that we could find today could change one day and use these rules to do something nefarious. So whether you're into pure freedom of speech online where nothing should be fact-checked, everyone could have the right to say anything they want and users have to decide for themselves if it's true or not, or if you're more in the something should be moderated camp with fact-checking done by a reliable source, I think we can all agree on this thing that having a government agency deciding what is true and what isn't is not great. Now let's go back to Linux uh, and specifically installers. We have two installers to talk about, the Ubuntu one and the Fedora one. Uh, first is the Ubuntu one and this new revamped installer will be part of Ubuntu 23.04. It will finally replace the old Ubiquity installer, and it's written in Flutter, which is a Google-designed toolkit that Ubuntu wants to push for their various applications. You can already try that new installer out in the daily builds of Ubuntu 23.04. And it doesn't look any different from the existing installer, if we can judge by screenshots. It follows the exact same order for the various screens, it doesn't add any other option that wasn't already there, until you complete the user creation part, at that point there's a new page and it's going to let you pick between light and dark mode. And that's about it. They do remove the option to use ZFS or ZFS as a file system to install Ubuntu, so it actually lost some functionality, but apart from that it doesn't change a thing. Okay, so the backend has been changed, that's true. They're now using Subiquity, which is the server uh, backend for Ubiquity. Uh, and they also have another project, uh, I think it's called Contin, uh, which is uh, basically making the Ubuntu install way faster. So there's that. But you had an opportunity to design something new here. So apparently their old installer had a lot of user research done on it, so it, it was designed in a good way, so it was understandable, and I agree, it was understandable. But also it was super bland and didn't really showcase anything that you could do on Ubuntu and the waiting time was not very interesting. Like they, they offered four slides, sometimes with really dated uh, screenshots and screen caps of applications that are shipped with the system. It didn't look great. There, there was the speed problem because other installers were speedier than, than they were, but that it was not slow by any means, and there was the look problem, and they basically didn't fix at all the look problem, even though they redeveloped the interface. So if they just wanted to change the back end, why not just reuse the same screens? Why redevelop a front end if it's going to look the exact same as it did before? It kind of feels like a big waste of time, especially since they started this new installer, this remake, I think we started talking about it at least a full year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. It's been a very long time since this thing has been in development. And it's not the backend, because a lot of that work already existed before. So unless no one really worked on it for all that time, it, and, and just people contributed here and there uh, for small parts, 
Or they just wasted a ton of time rebuilding a graphical user interface in Flutter, which is not a good sign for how easy to use Flutter is, but I also doubt that this is it. I don't really know why it took so long to do this, basically. That's what I'm saying. Why did it take a year and a half to come up with something based on technologies that already exist and a supposedly super easy to use GUI that was used to completely replicate the existing one? That's what I'm saying. I don't really understand the point of this project at all. Now, one that I to totally understand is the revamp of Fedora's installer. And yes, here's the Fedora fanboy. But the Fedora fanboy that I am uh, also thinks that Fedora's current installer is the worst installer I ever used on any operating system. Anaconda is a user experience nightmare and a user interface nightmare. It doesn't respect any conventions for UI design. The buttons to continue are in the top left. The hub design that you enter, you enter a module and when you say done, you go back to the central hub is not very legible. It's obviously always full screen, which is not great either because it's not super legible, especially on big displays. Because the button you have to click, for example, on an ultra-wide, if you want to click continue once you set up your partition layout or your keyboard layout, the button is in the top left corner. I, for example, have a 32 inches ultra-wide display. That button is so far out on the side of my, of my left eye that it took me, I think, five minutes to realize that it was there the first time I installed Fedora. It's a terrible, terribly designed installer. And, and they're redoing it, which is really good. And they already had shown a bunch of pictures and captures of the installer in a previous blog post. You can check that out on the internet by yourself. But now they're asking for people uh, to, to give some feedback about how they use their installers to partition their system. Because basically, since they're redoing the graphical user interface, they're going to have to redo the partitioning GUI. And that's very time consuming and that's very danger inducing as well. So they're asking people to fill in a quick survey. I think it, it takes like 10 minutes to fill, in, to fill out. Uh, and you can just tell them about your use case. Do you need partitioning in the GUI or do you always do it using Gparted, for example? They're asking for your level of understanding about partitioning, uh, how you use the installer for it, uh, your general setup, how many disks you usually have, if you use separate partitions like slash home, slash var, slash opt. Do you place these on separate partitions or not? When you reinstall your system, do you keep your slash home partition? Do you reformat everything? Do you backup or not? This type of questions. Basically, I think what they're trying to, to, to ascertain is it, does anybody need an advanced partitioning setup in the installer or do people just do it using Gparted? And so should the GUI include those advanced options at the risk of confusing new users and maybe making them make a mistake? Uh, or should they at least have some kind of feature to let you reuse old mount points into your new reinstall? They're asking for your feedback, basically. So I filled in the survey. Uh, basically, I fall in between the two things, as always. <laughs> I'm never on, in any extremes when, when it comes to Linux. Uh, so yes, I do need a partitioning GUI because I do restore my slash home partition and I want to be able to do that. But whether it's an advanced partitioning GUI or whether it's an automatic detection of, hey, you have this partition that has a folder called home on it. We assume it's a slash home partition. Do you want to mount it as your slash home partition? Boom, you're done. And that, that would be enough for me. I don't need a full-on partitioning GUI. I could do it with Gparted if I ever wanted to do it. 
But if your needs are different, go fill in the survey, if you use Fedora at least, go fill in the survey and uh, just make sure that your needs aren't completely squeezed uh, by the new installer. Okay, one last funny topic before we move on to the gaming news. Uh, Wikipedia, they deployed a revamp, a whole new redesign for their website on Wednesday. It's called Vector 2022, even though it came live in 2023. Uh, it's the first major redesign of Wikipedia since 2010. And I say major, but it's really not, because if you go to Wikipedia right now, you'll see that basically nothing has changed. It looks exactly the same with a bit more white space. Uh, the sidebar is now behind the hamburger menu and you have a sticky table of contents if your screen is large enough. That's it. That's it. And wh what's really funny about this one is that apparently Wikimedia has 23 person in their design team, 23 people and unpaid designers as well. And apparently this end result, Vector 2022, isn't satisfactory for anybody <laughs> it's it's insane nobody likes it like the older wikipedia users think that the previous one was more legible too much white space it's wasted space why does everything has to be big and the newer users don't really see any difference and so why, why would you do a redesign if it's to do that and so what it feels like to me is something that they probably what well, they probably had a a way more ambitious redesign in the cards. Uh, remember that it took 12 years to do this redesign. 12 years. They probably had something way more ambitious in the cards, uh, way more different, and slowly but surely they probably offered their ideas to various committees, various groups of people, various user groups. Uh, they offered all the design for discussion publicly, and so bit by bit they had to like go back on the various ideas that they had. They had to change things, which made other things of the design not work slowly but surely. And so they reached a weird compromise, which is basically the exact same theme as what Wikipedia used to have, but very, very slightly different with basically no real new features and no changes. But since it's not exactly the same, the people who discussed the new look and feel are not satisfied and the people who wanted a revamp also are not satisfied. This is something I encountered so many times when I had a, a normal day job as a product owner. We worked with a UX uh, agency, we worked with me, a UX expert uh, back in my day, with a graphical designer. We worked for months on, on mockups and, and redesigns and visual, uh, visual mockups, visual designs from the wireframe stage to the whole complete stage. We did some user focus groups with 10 or 15 users uh, from various experience levels and various interest levels and various computer knowledge levels. And we built something that was, let's not say perfect because nothing is, but intelligent, easy to understand, easy to use and not like overly over-designed. And then you show it to a board of directors and they're like, oh, I don't really understand this. Oh, what's that menu doing? Oh, what's that? But, but these people are not the intended target. They're not. They're either power users or people who would never use your tool. And so they should not be consulted. You should never consult your entire community on a redesign, on a visual or ergonomic redesign. Never. You pick a few users that you select to have like the most representative amount of people, but you stick to 20. 
You never, never, ever expose a full redesign to a group of people made out of, I don't know, 200,000 people in a public list where people can publicly discuss it. This is the best way to have the worst design ever because by agreeing to every demand or by listening to every demand, you end up having nothing and wasting time. It's stupid and I think that's exactly what happened to Wikipedia or I don't, I don't know, maybe this was their plan all along, but it kind of feels like design by committee that's been walked back bit by bit by bit until it's basically the exact same design as before but slightly worse for everyone. Okay, let's finish this with the gaming news. And first we have the Aya Neo company making handheld PCs for gaming. Uh, and they announced that their own Linux-based operating system, which they inventively named Aya Neo OS, will definitely be released this year. So they had already talked about Aya Neo OS, uh, saying, yes, it's our Linux-based operating system. It's going to replace Windows on our handhelds, but they hadn't shown that much of it. And we had basically no idea when it was coming out. So now we know it's 2023. They announced it on Twitter. They have a few screenshots. It's really hard to judge from them, uh, from these screenshots, how well this thing will work. But apparently the company has been relatively successful in launching their Aya Neo 2. Uh, they collected a bit more than $3 million to fund that crowdfunding campaign. And so, yeah, basically what they're saying is that Windows for handhelds and small screens sucks. Windows for appliances sucks, and I, I can disagree. Windows is a generalist OS. It has its use case, uh, and definitely, and it can be great for an all-purpose desktop, but when you want to squeeze the most performance out of a handheld exclusively designed for gaming, it's not the thing you should go to, because it uses tons of resources in the background and the interface has never been designed to run on this kind of stuff or to be used with joysticks and buttons. Whereas with something like Linux, you can completely customize it and run any interface you want so that it works. And I think INEO OS might be more interesting than SteamOS in a way. Because while SteamOS is really cool, it's limited to Steam. Because obviously it's built by Valve and they don't want to, they will never add like an epic game store inside of uh, SteamOS. Uh, they will never add uh, a, a way to add your, your humble bundle games uh, or your GOG games. Uh, unless you use a third-party tool. They will never have like a login option for these stores that let you automatically pick up your games. INEO could do it. They could, they could base their OS using Heroic Games Launcher or using uh, just the legendary API. Uh, they, they could integrate with GOG. They could integrate with anything they want. And so their OS might be more interesting than SteamOS if you want to build a, a gaming console for your living room, for example, or buy another handheld and use their OS. Of course, we don't know if it's going to be open, if they're going to release it for everybody, so it might be a moot point, but I think it's going to be interesting to follow. And the last thing of this podcast, Stadia is now officially dead. It shuttered on Wednesday, about three years after it started, and it was a very clean shutdown. Like, it's not something that went badly. Google has refunded every customer for their game purchase, controller purchase. Uh, I think they didn't refund them for the subscription, but I'm not sure. Maybe they did. Uh, they also made sure that the controller could work normally with a regular computer, not just with Stadia. And it looks like it was a pretty promising technological achievement. People who use Stadia regularly seem to really enjoy it. Uh, they said the connection was stable, the image quality was good. It looked like it was good. The problem was 
the business side of things. Google just did not build an intelligent business model for this product. Wanting people to pay full price for games on top of a subscription if you wanted 1080p or 4K gaming, instead of offering just a monthly fee for a catalog of games, I think, I think it doomed them, basically. And also the usual Google, no communication, no PR once a product is launched was obviously a big problem. But yeah, the business model was just dumb. And I think if they had done something in the same vein as Game Pass, for example, from Microsoft, they could have succeeded. Because basically buying a single game at full price on Stadia at, let's say, 60 bucks, it would have bought you about five months of Game Pass and Xbox Cloud. And Xbox Cloud ran on any device, just like Stadia, used any controller you wanted, not like Stadia, and wasn't really all that worse in terms of latency and image quality. Yes, it wasn't as responsive as Stadia, but the difference was very not noticeable. If your connection was good enough to be cloud gaming in decent conditions on Stadia, you would also have decent conditions on Xbox Cloud. And you had access to a full-on gaming catalog of more than 100 games that you can stream to any browser, any phone, anything. Why would you pay for a full game on Stadia when you could play xCloud instead with more games for less money? It just made no sense. So quantity very genuinely beat quality this time around, it looks like. And so I'm sorry for people who use Stadia because... I called it when they launched it. I said it was going to die, and it did. I said it wasn't going to be the future of gaming, and it wasn't, because their model was dumb. And I'm sorry for people who decided to use it, because it looked like if if it filled your use case, it was really cool. And so, yeah, now it's dead, and if you want to do cloud gaming, your options are basically GeForce Now, uh, which only lets you play your own games that you already bought on other platforms, so at least you can still have them on other platforms when you want to play them not in the cloud, or Xbox Cloud, which has been a very decent option if you have a good enough connection. And this concludes this podcast. So I, I've noticed that they, they tend to be, to grow bigger. Uh, first episode, second episode was bigger. Third episode is bigger than the second. I'm going to try to keep them under an hour uh, at all, if possible. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'll try to ramble a little bit less. I did ramble quite a bit in the AI department. Sorry, this topic is very interesting to me and also a very conflicted one for me. So... Yeah, I love AI tools, but I also think they should be heavily regulated. So let's not go back there. So yeah, if you enjoy the podcast, well, there are links to help support the show. You can just tell me that you liked it in the comments on the podcast website. Uh, you just need to have a, a like a Fediverse account to be able to comment uh, underneath the podcast. And well, as always, it's also available through an RSS feed that you can also find on the website. Uh, it's available on iTunes and Spotify if you prefer. Or you can just subscribe to the podcast on Mastodon or any other Fediverse client uh, to have all new episodes show up in your timeline. So thanks for listening. If you really enjoyed it, don't hesitate to support the channel using the links in the show notes. And I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye.